Well, it's great to see you this morning. Olive Branch, how you doing? It's good to see you guys. And we are uh, working through the last, uh, the last portion of this series. If you're in junior high or high school, this is the point where you can uh, head on out and go to your own programming. But we are um, at this, we're continuing forward in this series called Unopposed. This is the last actual sermon in this series. Uh, and we've come to kind of the end of Romans chapter 11. This has been kind of, we've been rolling through Romans for about a year and a, two years almost now. And so we're hitting 9, 10, and 11. And uh, this is the end of this, this one. And so we're kind of uh, looking at this and really talking about God's sovereignty, examining and uh, talking about the fact that God is, um, is God. There's nobody else running for God. There's nobody else who can be God except him. And so as we've been kind of diving into the questions Paul has been examining in the book of Romans in this area, there's been some interesting conversations that probably have come up maybe in your life, they've come up in mine. And um, one of those was a couple of weeks ago, or maybe it was a week ago or so, that uh, one of the ladies that, are, that kind of volunteers at the church was talking to me and asked me, hey, why is it that we are not like getting into all this stuff about Ebola and um, all the things that are going on out there with ISIS? And, and why aren't we talking about what's happening with Russia? I mean, shouldn't we be talking about all this stuff from the pulpit? Shouldn't you be telling us how we should feel or, or something in that zone? And I was like, well, I kind of felt like I was doing that, you know, because I think one of the things I'm seeing in our culture, and I listen to political radio, um, not probably as much as I used to, but it was this bad even a little while ago. But something I've really been hearing is in the critique about politics and the critique about people's and their political positions. It's all come down to these people haven't solved problems, so now these people need to solve problems. Nobody's solving problems, so we've got to choose the least, uh, kind of the, wor- the, the best of the two evils in order to solve these problems. Uh, we're not, um, you know, the, the administration hasn't solved the Ebola problem rightly or the, or the, uh, or the uh, ISIS problem, whatever it is. And I keep hearing about problem solving by our government over glo- huge global issues. I'm not saying they don't have a place in that solution. I'm not, I'm not so sure I want to get into the debate of whether they should be doing that or whatever's going on. But what I'm more concerned about is the heart of Americans at this point. And what I'm seeing is that they're pouring in their hope. They're pouring in their, their need to fix issues into politicians. And I begin to wonder, have we just gone and grabbed a new God off the shelf because whatever we thought was God before has, has not worked out for us? And there's a real sense that I fear what we're, what we're working into is kind of a conversation of that these guys will solve our huge ailments. When, you know what, the bottom line is nobody can run for God. God alone is sovereign. God alone will solve the Ebola, the ISIS, all these other problems. He alone is the one who is in charge of all of these things. And that's what we've been looking at. And in fact, many of us can get nervous. In fact, we can get scared as you listen to all of these radio things and television programs. You begin to go like, this is nuts. Like, we're all going to die. You know, when is it going to land in California? And then it's just going to spread like crazy. And somebody in parliament's going to be blown up there. They're going to come here. And, they're gonna, and we can come up with all kinds of stories, all kinds of predictions, all kinds of thinking. And most of us, I think, default to the fear and then go, this must be the end of the world. This is the end times. That's why this is happening, period. I feel better now. The only problem is if it's not the end times. How do we resolve it? Now, obviously, we're in the end times. But is this the final, final, you know, kind of situation? And really, the question is, what do we do with this? How do we resolve this? And yet, others of us are having a big conversation from these passages that seem to be totally off point. 
right? We got all this massive sphere and stuff going on in our world, and we're talking about well, God being sovereign, and some of us have gotten into conversations about, well, does man have free will then? And how does man have free will if God is sovereign? And, and how does this stuff work out? And what's this election and predestination stuff go with our choices and, and, and receiving the... And well, I don't know, How many of you guys have any conversations like that? Anybody? Anybody avoided conversations like that? And it's like... We can all wind up in these deep theological conversations. You're going, what's the point with this mess over here? And I find it fascinating that I feel like what Paul does is is he ties up this thought, this debate over sovereignty and and thinking and all this stuff. And and he's been trying to say one thing. Listen, God is is unopposed. He's ruling in the heavens. He's not going to abandon the people that he loves. He has has called us to a great mission to get the gospel out there. And as we live this out and do that, people will become jealous and come and belong in the church. God's got a solution. Get going is kind of how Paul has been talking. So what does you do with this? What do we do with this sovereignty thing? What do we do with this mess? What's the response? Well, let's look at this response. It's on Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 33. So if you want to grab a Bible, let's look at how Paul finalizes all of his thinking at the end of 11 chapters of thought. Romans chapter 11, beginning in 33. We're going to go all the way through 36, the end of the chapter. We're going to look at this. And this is how Paul says it. Again, if you don't have a Bible, go ahead and grab one. You can open up to page 947 and join with us. But we're here and starting in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given gift to him that he might be repaid? For for from him and through him and to him are all things to him. Be glory forever. Amen. This is a very interesting way to end a whole bunch of interesting arguments about God's faithfulness and salvation and all these pieces. He ends with worship. He doesn't end with a final theological like bullet that just answers all of our problems. In fact, what Paul does is, in essence, he takes his pen, throws it in the air and says, God, you're incredibly complex and amazing. I can't figure this out. And he worships God. It's really important that we realize this because I think one of the dangers in all of this conversation that we've rolled through is to land on a problem that I saw illustrated in my youth, not my youth ministry, but the youth ministry I was involved in in high school. I was saved when I was a senior, and I ended up in a youth ministry that was multiple hundreds of students. It was a big, big youth group, and I loved what we got to do. I, I enjoyed all kinds of stuff. Later, I became a leader. But one of my friends, or not really my friends, but one of my uh, schoolmates who was also in my grade with me, had come to Christ, and he had about a, a, a company of about 120 kids who would go to a barn and, and have a, he would have a Bible study with. And slowly but surely, this guy became very much a leader amongst all the other students and began to split the youth group over the question over God's sovereignty and human free will. And eventually it led a whole segment of my friends to leave the church, go somewhere else that they thought was more biblical and more right and da-da-da-da-da. But what was weird was he kept leading them until he led many of them away from the faith. Walked away from the Trinity, walked away from the stuff. Over the years, as I've had opportunity to talk to this guy at, school, at a school, high school reunion and a couple other times I've ran into him, it's pretty much come down to this, that he can't answer all his questions. That there are just answers that God, that this doesn't work with. And now he's, he's not a Christian, he's not even a theist, he doesn't believe in God at all. And he actually very much felt that the problem was, 
I can't have all the answers. And that's what I find fascinating is Paul doesn't go, I quit. I can't find all the answers. Paul drops his pen and says, I worship. I can't find all the answers. Where one of my friends saw an inability to believe, another Paul saw the the very launch pad of worship. And that's what he does. He worships. You see, we come in with these tiny little American gods we can put in our pockets. We, we think we got answers and we think we got understanding of God and he loves people. And, and what we're trying to realize is that this God is so huge, so big, so incredible. The response to him isn't simple. It's overwhelming. In fact, what we see is, I believe it starts with where Paul starts. He says, God's overwhelming, immeasurable in mind. That God is this God who is overwhelming. He's immeasurable in mind. That's two very big words on purpose because it needs to have that sense of, bigness to it. Notice what he says. Oh, the depth, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. This is where he begins. He's like, oh my gosh, God is so huge, so big. He's like the ocean. That's what that word depth means. It was a picture of the ocean and was the idea that this, the ocean was the scariest thing in the ancient world's mind because you got on the ocean and you sailed out and it was likely you never came back. You got out there and you could originally, you could get out there in the waves and run around, but it would pound you. It was so powerful. Just on the edge of the ocean was powerful, let alone the size of the waves and the mysteries of the deep, as they called it. In fact, it got to the point where they, they knew they could sail along the edges and they would throw out what they call fathoms and it would, this line would run with knots in it and it would hit the ground. And they'd say, this many fathoms, so we're not going to run ashore. But when you got out to the ocean, when you got out to the deep, They threw that thing over the side, and it didn't matter how long your rope was, it never stopped. And so we get this idea of the abyss, the bottomless pit, is the concept of the ocean. It's this bottomless thing that you just can't get to the bottom of. You can't plummet, you can't can't find the fathom deep enough. It's unfathomable. And Paul steals this word and says, oh, the depth a bit of frighteningness to it, a bit of incredibleness to it, a bit of overwhelmingness to it that is so deep, so incredible, so overwhelming, we just don't get it. We don't get it. It makes us stand back and go, ah, my brain is needing to defrag. I don't know what's wrong. You know, it's, it just causes problems. And here's the thing. I think Paul is overwhelmed by this idea. He's overwhelmed by this concept. It's something that I, I like to think why I enjoyed seminary so much. I know some pastors will get up and call it cemetery, as if it killed something in their heart. Yeah, to me, seminary evoked passion and wonder of God. And probably why I'm a bit of a, a, a book hoarder. I'm a book collector, I, I guess. I mean, um, I like books. And if you go in my office, I got rows and rows and rows of books. You go to my house, and we got books everywhere. Just We like books. And I like going to libraries. And I like staring at lines of books. I love going through Biola, where we had three levels of tons of books and magazines and just information. And what's why I'm bringing books up is I could pile this room full of books. I could pile... The, the planet full of books, and we could read all of them and have the information edge on, age on steroids, and you still wouldn't scratch the knowledge of God. That the ink spilled out by scholars just on biblical literature, literary, li- literature, literature, yeah, that, that's a good word, Greg. Literature is, is all birthed from this. A, a small book that has inspired Shakespeare. That's inspired 
masses of tomes of, of literature, art, pictures, paintings, sculptures, cathedrals. It inspired some of the first scientists to get out there and go look at God's book of the world, as they called it, his book of nature, and explore the world and discover God had laid in his knowledge into the very warp and woof of the, of the world around us. So that when you take an ad in the science textbooks and the science literature and all of the arguments and all the, all of this, all the mathematics that goes into it and all of the experiments and all of the pieces that we go into, all we're doing is exploring what God already knows and isn't surprised when we discover it. And then we go into art and we, we wonder at these men who've taken and these women who've taken paint and a canvas and and they've studied it so well they know the the aspect and the hue and they know the the shading and the angle and they know exactly how it works between symmetry and asymmetry and all this stuff they've learned and they make this beautiful work of art that's just mimicking what God already made you sit back he's the quintessential artist he's a genius scientist the greatest philosopher the ultimate mathematician God is all of these things, and he's the expert at all of these things, and it's all us going around going, we get it now. Oh, no, no, never mind, some more information. Oh, well, now we get it. No, 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 no. Now we get it. And we just keep moving along like we're smart or something. Like we got it all figured out. We're, 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 we're the human beings, for goodness sakes. I just, I think this, this idea of God being overwhelmingly immeasurable in mind blows me away. And it should humble us. It, should not, it does two things. I think it should hurt our heads and our pride. It should hurt our heads and our pride. It should make our heads hurt. Anybody ever had a good headache? I'm not talking about the bad headaches. not the migraines and I got a headache. No, I'm talking about where you need to drink some water. I'm talking about a good headache. You've been in school and you've been reading and you've been challenging your brain. You've been thinking about things and you're just like, my brain hurts. Hopefully by the end of this sermon, your brain hurts. Because you've been trying to think of things that make you go deeper into ways that you've never thought before. And the danger is that we all just dismiss it. In fact, it's been shown the American world, and especially the church, is considered anti-intellectual. We don't like it. We don't want to think. We got God and that's enough. Yet God is a genius. And we're made in his image. And what he's called us to do is be a people that plumb his depths because it brings about worship. It makes us go, whoa! What I find fascinating is as I've thought about this, I see this a commonality between the car mechanic and the ballerina to God. They're both studying mechanics. One studies the mechanics of the body, the movement of, of, of levers and these things, but we call it a body. And they look at it and you go, what are? And they say, well, there's some science to it too. You'll hear them say that kind of a thing. But they're, they're doing it with Sound resonance and all this stuff and evocative movements of musical notes. That's all art, right? That's the humanity side over here is the science side. Mechanics and, and pistons and, and car parts and motors. And don't you dare put ballerinas in all, No, but bottom line is they're sitting there and they're looking at this thing and they're getting the mechanics and the levers and how things work. And when they listen, they hear how the engine works and they can hear if something's wrong. There's a tuning to it. There's a way it's supposed to work. And when you talk to them, they go, it's more of an art than a science. When they're really into it. Why do we say that? Because it's all one body of knowledge. God is the one who sees it all, knows it all, and could sum it up in one word, and we'd all go, whoa, and understand. 
Let your mind dive deep and get out of the kiddie pool. And if we're all afraid, what happens is, well, we are going to be super intellectual people and walk around and have a wonderful attitude about ourselves. <laughs> no. Because it can make some, all of us into scholars, but takes all the scholars who think they're really smart and puts them into this where they're like, <laughs> it humbles us. Should our hurt our head and our pride, guys? Yeah, we live in the information age. And so nowadays where we think we can go, so how do you get to heaven? We go, hold on, let me Google that. As if information is actually powerful. No. You know why God didn't just make a book with all the information in it? Because he wanted us to think. He wanted us to see how powerfully great and deep he is. So all he did is he gave us the framework from which to think from. He gave us the boundaries so we could be free. So we wouldn't spend our time thinking about things that were untrue, living our lives doing things that harmed them. But instead what we ended up doing was actually thinking his thoughts and enjoying the depth of his world. And so God's mind is huge. We ought to explore what he's created and be overwhelmed. And where it leads us to is worship. And when we're in our troubled times and we're in our fear, we can be reassured that in the midst of all the chaos of the world that we don't understand, God's not surprised. And there's nothing he doesn't know about. And there's nothing that shocks him. And it should bring comfort. Second, Paul goes into the fact that God is unpredictable in his way. And I believe that should humble our plans and our predictions, our prophecies, in a sense, in our own lives. And so here's how he puts it. How unsearchable are his judgments? How inscrutable are his ways? For who has known the mind of the Lord? And who has been his counselor? I mean, how many of you guys really think you can walk up to God and say, God, let me teach you something here, man? You can't. No, nobody can do that to God. If you think you can give God something that he doesn't already know, you've got too small of a God. Throw that one in the trash. Because if you're bigger than your God, you know more than your God, you don't have a God. And it's really important because the American God that we sell lets you do whatever you want, lets you make it up on your own. That's not a very smart God. And what we see here is a very real God who is unpredictable in his ways, and it humbles us. And the way I have to explain this is, is, is only done well, I believe, by C.S. Lewis. How many of you guys know Narnia? You've, you've read Narnia, seen Narnia, or heard about Narnia at some point in your life. Okay, so there's this one named Aslan. He's the lion. He's the Jesus figure in the books. And what's interesting is anytime somebody approaches Aslan, what happens is that they get scared. And they always give this warning. Oh, he's not a tame lion but he's good. What they mean by that is he's wild. He's a wild creature. Anything that's wild to us is untamed, uncontrolled by humanity. We realize God will never be tamed by humanity. He will never be controlled by any of us. God is wild. God is so wild, so incredibly other than us. You can't counsel him. He's unsearchable in his judgments. We can't He's inscrutable. That means you can't chase him down. We like to say God's ways are mysterious. That's another way of putting this. But what's talking about here is that God can't be contained in a box. And what we mean by that is not that you can't define God's character. God told us what he's like, that he's loving, 
He's joyful. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. Yes, we can understand God's characteristics, but that doesn't mean we get how he does things. That doesn't mean that he doesn't do things that shock us little humans. You see, we sit here, and we have got about this much information. That's about it. And we step back and we go, I got this thing licked. I got life figured out. God's going to act like this. In fact, there are theologians that try to argue, if you know enough about God, you can figure out how he's going to work. No way. God is God. He is his own person, his own being. He is himself, and we're not him. And sometimes we're really uncomfortable with that. And I'll tell you when that happens, because you'll go through something in your life, and you'll look at God and go, God, what in the world are you doing? You ever been there? God's inscrutable. He's unsearchable in his ways. He is so good, though, we can trust him. But that doesn't mean we get him. And that doesn't mean you have to get him to trust him. It means that he has everything in his control. He's not freaked out by it. Nobody else is running. He's the only God there is. And even though we don't get it all the time, what he's up to, he's up to something good. And that is huge for us. It humbles our planning. It humbles our predictions. How many times have I gone into a meeting or something and I thought I know exactly how this is going to work out and it doesn't work out anywhere close to that? Anybody been there? We're really bad at predicting. Even when we know the people we're going in to talk to, they're going to act like this, they're going to say these things and they don't do any of those things. We're really bad at prediction. We're really bad at planning. I'm not saying we shouldn't plan. I'm not saying we shouldn't be prepared. But we should always be humble. In fact, James jumps on this in his book. And he says, you know, we walk into town. We say, tomorrow we're going to do this or this or this or this. And and he says, no, 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 no. That's pride. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Because he's the one who's got it all down. It's his way that will survive and succeed. Our ways, all we've got is a choice. But we're not even guaranteed that's going to work out the way we want it to. And so God's ways are greater than ours. His plans will be made out, and he does it through us. I don't know how he does that. He takes our bad and our good, our mistakes and our good choices, and he goes, yeah, I can do anything I need to do. And I do it all through that. That's that's inscrutable. I, I can't see it. When people sit down to counsel, and they go, why is God doing this to me? I go, I have no idea. You're asking a time question for us. Only God sees it all in totality. Sometimes all we have to do is wait. So what do we do with all this mess of Ebola and all these things out there? We sit back and go, oh my gosh, God, you've got control of this. I don't know what you're up to, but you're good. You will not abandon your people, and so I do not need to fear. And you've given us a mission, and so I'm going to put myself in some dangerous positions sometimes because the gospel needs to get to people that are in dangerous places. And guess what? That's exactly what God did. He put himself in a dangerous place called earth and died on a cross to bear our sins so that we could be saved. And when he gives us that responsibility to take it out there, it's not going to be a walk in the park. It's going to be dangerous. It's going to be risky. It's going to need us to trust that he is good even though we don't get all his ways all the time. And so I want to encourage you guys that God is in charge of it. He's got it handled. And when you feel the fear, you don't need to just put it off as as an end times thing. That may be true. But the point is that you need to take it to God. Realize he's in control. Realize he's greater than the situation. Realize nothing's outside of his purview. 
And hopefully what it does is it leads you back to worshiping him who is able and capable. And that's what it does for Paul. It leads him to worship. Finally, it leads him to worship because God, and this is his last one, he's blown away that God owes nothing because everything is his. God owes nothing. He goes on, oh, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And what he says here is, look, who can give God something? Who can possibly give God something that they would expect to be repaid for? And this nails me, and this nails many of us, because there are various aspects in our lives where we honestly could sit back, and if we looked at it, we're upset with God because he didn't give us what we wanted. Somehow we think he owed us. My mom died at 60 of cancer. She was an awesome mom. She had great, great librarian, loved kids, did some amazing stuff as a counselor, died of a cancer where she should have been able to beat it. It was like a, upwards of 90% people beat this cancer. Now I could sit back and go, God, I don't know what you're thinking. You owed my mom a better life. Look at how she lived. And, da, 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 and you owed me a better opportunity. You owed my grand, her grandkids a chance to know her. You didn't do any of that. God, you owe. And, God, and, and Paul goes, whoa, 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 whoa. When we understand that God knows everything, God's in control of everything, God has everything, and he made it all, and it's all for him, and it's all his, when he's unopposed as God, what in the world does he owe you? You can't give him anything that he owes you back. And man, that strikes at the nerve of our pride. That strikes at the nerve of our going, oh God, you owe me something. And he's going, what? What do I owe you? And this, this is hard, but this is what he's saying. Who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? Instead, what happens is God, we're automatically to give God the glory because he's God. That, that's humbling. That hurts. But that's worship. It's not preference. It's not about enjoyability all the time. It's about the fact that God has loved us with such a great love that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross to bear our sin that we had against him, this great God. We're not talking about an old man upstairs that little grandpa who's upset with those, oh, you shouldn't have done that. No, we're talking about the great God who is the sovereign king of the universe, created everything, and he's infinite and huge. Sin against you and me is smaller because, hey, we're smaller beings, but when you sin against an infinite God, it's an infinite, it's an infinite crime. This stuff's huge, and what he was willing to do is come down and bear the punishment for that infinite crime on himself. To say, I love you so much, I will suffer on your behalf so that you won't have to suffer it ultimately. Not so we run off and go sin, not so we run off and go do whatever we want, but so that we would see and realize, I can't pay this back, but I am forever in your debt. That hugeness doesn't mean God owes us anything. He gave that as a grace, as a gift. That blows my mind. It's a gift, undeserved. I don't go clean up, make sure I'm good with God, and then he goes, yeah, you deserve this. Here you go, here's a present. No, as if we owed, as if he owed it to us. I don't go out and sin masterfully and do horrible things, and now I go, oh, I owe you salvation. No, no, no. God just gives it of his own desire, his own love, his own will. A gift that puts us in a position where we go, how would I ever pay this back? And he says, you can't. so overwhelming, so transforming. It leads 
to worship. These roads lead to worship because of who God is, because of what he does, because of his glory, meaning everything that's about him. That that is mind-boggling. And it's one step even crazier that he would then say, now, here's what I want you to do. Take this message. Give it to those who've never heard it. I have the gift that goes to them. Take it everywhere. Because wherever he isn't worshipped, he longs to see the mission reign. That's why we as a church, we want to unleash the gospel to the unreached. We want to send people out. Because we want to trust that he's going to use us. We want to trust that he's going to do something through us. That's why we as a church are going to trust that whatever God's doing amongst us, that he knows what he's up to. He's inscrutable in his ways. Yes, Jason and Danielle will be leaving. But I want you guys to be so confident in God that he could replace anybody on this stage and anybody in this congregation that if he wants to make a difference in this world through this church, he'll do it because he's unopposed as God. Amen? That's the sole heart of everyone who ever gets to work here is that we want everybody to know that God alone is king. God alone directs the church. We are but little pieces he can move in and out as he sees fit. And to him be the glory. Guys, I want to encourage you to be a part of what God does through churches. And this church, we know our responsibility. We saw it two weeks ago. We know our responsibility is to get that gospel out there, to be a part of what God's doing. We know that he will use very interesting ways to do it. But he has allowed us to be a participant in this. And so I want to challenge you guys. I challenge you to write down two people this week. Two people that over this next season, Thanksgiving and and, and Christmas, over this next season, you plan to invite to church. If you're here at Olive Branch, if you're a guest, I hope, and you go to a different church, then invite them to your church. If you go here at Olive Branch, you're part of, you're part of this place, I want you to take those names. I want you to text them to yourself or, you know, put them on, put them on a phone call, put them somewhere, get those names down, be praying for them. We're going to give an opportunity at Thanksgiving. We're going to have some opportunities over the Christmas season for you guys to connect and invite and build those relationships. We really do believe that it's about us being honest about who our God is and bringing the message that Jesus Christ has borne our sins, that we can be forgiven of our sins, and it's a gift given by God, that that is something that everybody needs to hear and have a chance to receive. Not everyone will. But let's, 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 let's give it a shot. So let's begin with those two people. So do that for me. Write those names down. As we bow our heads, you know, contemplate those names and ask God to show you who they are. So would you bow your heads with me? There are others in this room this morning that maybe you, um, you came in with a little God. You came in with a God who kind of, yeah, forgives sins, but you didn't know why. And you didn't know how. But this great God, this huge God, this God who we've sinned against, this infinite, powerful, almighty, wonderful, loving God, has only given one way. And all his genius, it's, it's the way that he made for us to be right with him. It's the way he made to deal with our sin. It's the way he made to give us eternity in heaven. And that way was through Jesus Christ. God came, became a human being, lived a perfect life, and 
what we did is we crucified him. But on that cross, God did an amazing thing. He took the sins of the world and put them on his shoulder, put it on him. And he bore the punishment for those sins that if we would trust in that, if we would trust in his work, trust in this gift, this promise, that our sins would be dealt with on the cross. And then when Jesus rose from the dead, we were given the promise that our lives were renewed. We have a new chance. We were born again to have a new life. And then he comes into our life because sin has been dealt with and he lives with us and leads and guides us. And maybe you need to come back. You've been away from God for a long time and you've forgotten that Christ has given you this sacrifice. Or maybe this is the first time you've ever heard about it. And you realize that this gift is given to you by God to be set free, to, to be forgiven of sin and to have a relationship with him. And so this, this morning is your opportunity to receive that gift. And I want to give you that chance right now. If this, if this is the time that you're saying, yes, I want to receive forgiveness of sins. I want a chance, new chance on life, and I want, to, I want God to lead me in it. You're ready to receive that. You don't get cleaned up or anything else like that before you just receive it right where you're at. You're right here today. If that's you and you'd like to receive that, just let me know. I would I'd love to pray with you. Just put your hand up and you say, that's me. I'm ready right now. Amen. I want to walk you through. You can just right where you're at. Begin your conversation with God. Just let God know kind of those sins that he's brought up in your heart. What you're doing is he already knows them, but you're just kind of laying them out saying, I see them too, God, and and you're saying I'm sorry. So just begin to lay those sins out before him. Now we're going to take a process. We're going to call repentance. We're going to turn away from the sins. You're going to turn to Christ in your mind and your heart. And, and just let God know that you're giving your sins over to Jesus. Tell God that you're trusting that Jesus has taken your sins on the cross and that you're forgiven. And let God know that you trust that Jesus was risen from the dead and that you've got a new chance on life. Finally, just ask God to come into your life and lead you through the rest of it. And God, for those who are praying through this prayer, who are coming back to you, Lord, or, or for the first time starting that relationship with you, I ask that you'd bless them with your presence. I ask that you would continue to teach them and that the Bible would make sense. And that you would just continue to lead them on in their lives. I ask for the rest of us here today with those names, God, the people that we're thinking of, that you would allow us an opportunity to show them who you are. To know what your son Jesus has done. We ask that you, Father, would lead us in these ways. Your ways are way beyond us. You're way more intelligent than us. We humble ourselves before you. Please lead us in Jesus' name. Amen.